if you're a parent or a practitioner, understand this. A behavior analyst has a responsibility to be able to adjust. They have to seek more knowledge to have the ability to better serve the diverse cultures and families they service. At the same time, they have to be mindful of their own biases and challenges that may affect and hinder their service. By that, they should take the appropriate steps to resolve their own personal barriers to ensure their work is not compromised. Behavior analysts have to make efforts to involve their clients, include them when selecting goals and prioritize their best interests. While listening to this podcast, behavior analysts need to act in the best interests of their clients and families by taking the appropriate steps to support their clients and maximize their benefits and do no harm. that explain their role and not only did they name a discipline um, specifically but yes they named the discipline and they and they explained their role as a therapist as a behaviorist as a um, clinician as a, a speech therapist they were very specific about what their role looked like and how they were going to implement it and they also valued the role of the parent and asked me what my role as a parent was and how can I contribute to the therapy itself or the service versus I'm here to teach you this and I'm here so that you can do this, not so that I can take care of your kid. For me, when it started that way, I already felt, because of my experiences, I felt like, wait, are you telling me I'm not taking care of them? And I'm like, I read in between the lines and I will ask now. Back then, I would just keep it inside. So some of those really positive experiences um, came across when providers explained their role and what that was going to look like and how I could help or my family and how we can contribute to services. And we're also really good about explaining what a goal was and what an intervention was and how we can all work it as a team and, and collaborate. Um, they also took the time to speak with me as opposed to just my child. So it didn't make me feel like you're just here for the child because that child belongs to a family that's being raised by, in this case, mom and, and dad and grandma and aunt. And they took the time to talk to us, to embrace our, our culture. Welcome to the third episode of the Resilience Podcast. I am Marcos Aguilar Jr., a board-certified behavior analyst. 
Today we have board-certified behavior analysts Carolina Gonzalez and Daniel Mendoza connecting with Mireya Romero and her story. Remember, it's not the kind of hardship that is most significant, but how we cope with it. When we confront misfortune, tribulation, or disturbance, resilience helps us recover. a 35-year-old woman with a daughter who's now 17, um, well, about to turn 17. And I come from a Salvadorian family. Uh, my mother is Salvadorian. My dad was from Mexico. Um, but I was uh, raised by my mother um, in the Adams and Crenshaw area. So I think for us um, to really understand our story, it's or for any provider to really understand where we're coming from or even my parent concerns, they have to really recognize and go back into records to know the, the family that we were 17 years ago um, or where I grew up, which is Adams and, and Crenshaw. That's my that's home for me. My mom actually still resides in that area. Um, I have a very small family. Uh, there is three three women in my family. Well, we're three sisters, um, all who I very much love. One is in Chicago. My youngest sister lives with um, my mom. She is the first to graduate from um, the university. But then my sister was the first to buy her home. Um, so that makes me really look up to them. And then I had my daughter when I was... 18 and I became pregnant when I was 17 um, so that's I want that's that's part of my background with with my daughter um, I received her di diagnosis at birth so that was something that I, I didn't know um, were you aware of developmental disabilities at the time not at all I didn't even know where I was developmentally myself so you were so you were 17 and you dropped out of school that you guys were like struggling financially there was all kinds of like things going on in your life that now you look back and you're like wow we, i was going through a lot and then you got a diagnosis yes. from your daughter tell and me how, tell me how did you even feel like how it was it was it was a very um numb feeling um all my that that was my my foundation to the age of 17 now I can look at it and say like, wow, that foundation was, was a really rough one to begin with. But back then it didn't feel like that because that's all I knew. And I didn't know nobody else that did not know something like that. So when you grow up in a specific area with certain, with so many barriers in your life, you don't even know that you're experiencing the barriers. But now looking back, you can re clearly see it. Clearly, clearly. And back then to me, it was... It was normal. I remember one day someone like took me to another city here in LA County and there was grass. And I was like, oh my God, there's so much grass around here. And I was, I remember being so surprised because we didn't have that in, in the street I lived in. It was like empty lots or tire shop, you know, people selling drugs outside. Liquor stores. Liquor stores. Um, I gave birth to my daughter. And she was kept in the hospital. She was born April 13. 
she was kept in the hospital until May 10 because they said that she had a, um, a, a some type of infection that required care. And while in the hospital, the social worker came and, and told me to gear up for adoption. What? They said, you know what? You're really young. Don't worry about it. You know, there's families in line that would like to adopt a child with Down syndrome. You know, just, just tell your family that she passed. That's baffling. Oh like what? You know, that's... It, it, I'm like at a loss for words. Yeah. I don't... Is is that something that would happen in the more affluent area? Like someone would have become outraged if they had just given birth to a child and they were more affluent, and they someone might have got sued at that hospital. Yeah. Wow. And I can still remember, and it wasn't even a conversation like, you know, let's let's sit down and talk about this. You know, let's let's explore things. No, no, it was it was in the door of the room where she was at. And, you know, I didn't drive. I didn't have none of that. I, I never left her sight. I would have to I would have to go home to, like, you know, do stuff. But I would come back right away. And she was in the door standing there, which is how I also got the diagnosis. Um, it was April, April 19th. It was she was born April 13th, April 19th. Um, it was one of my sister's birthdays. And they had come home while I had went to um, clean up and all that. And my sister told me, call the hospital to ask them um, how many people can go in and see her. And I called and they picked up the, the, the phone. And surprisingly, it was the doctor um, who was attending her that day. And I asked her, like, oh, you know, I'm so-and-so. And I'd like to know, like, how many people can go and visit um, my daughter. And the doctor over the phone said, I'm not sure. He's like, I'm the doctor, but I just want to let you know that um, your daughter um, has what they, in your country, is called Mongola. Which, which is? Um, that was another term for Down syndrome, Mongol. In, in Espanol. Yes, a very um, demeaning way to say Down syndrome, which even clinically would be trisomy 21. And that's how I got the diagnosis. That's how I got the confirmation that she actually had um, trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome, um, over the phone. Over April the 19th. phone. With and the term that was with the der derogatory. Very, very um, derogatory. Um, and through all that time, we had just, you know, kind of kept hanging from that one percent and again this was all for lack of education on my part that she would not have um down syndrome and i think what was more afraid was not our care towards her because we loved her from from the day that i i was told i was expecting but it was more how the world would perceive her and her quality of life um but yeah that's how i i got the diagnosis um she was in the hospital almost for about a month it was a, a really hard time because I would go and they would I now I think about it and they would do everything in their hands so that I wouldn't bond with her so I would get there and she was already bathed or she was already dressed or she was already fed um so How? there was very little things I can do when I went um but I I never gave up I never gave up um and on Mother's Day I brought her back home Yet, I brought her back home. 
the building where we lived right next door was a tire shop and um there was always a lot of smell of marijuana so we bring her home and that same day or the next day dcfs comes to the house and for like no given reason um other than they came to do a wellness check and that social worker came i remember her having a white coat i don't know why um she came and she did not have me get drug tested i don't recall getting a drug test but she gave us a specific amount of days to move out from the apartment that i lived in with my mom because i lived in the bedroom that was connected to that tire shop next door in that in giving you that directive did they give you any kind of support so you no, can not at all so you were expected to move from that apartment and you had you guys had limited resources they give you a certain amount of days and what was going to be the consequences what was going to be the consequence if you didn't move from that uh, apartment the removal of my daughter so you were kind of you were between essentially between a rock and a hard place there was either figure it out or you you don't have your do- you daughter you lose custody yeah. so by this point it the first point that you interact with the system which was when she was born you have a social worker in your house telling you in your in your in your hospital room telling you to to give her up and then even while she was in the hospital uh the nurses and everybody else was doing most of the care and by the time you got there you had very limited ability to to interact with her and and bond with her and then you you actually get to get her home and one of the first things that happens is you're, you're directed to move out and you had at that point you hadn't even done anything to kind of get dcfs to come to your house you just had a baby and were a, a young woman and then they tell you to move out by a certain time or they're going to take her. Correct. <laughs> and, and then you think about it and, and it's for me, it was like, okay, DCFS, like, where were you when I was a child? Like, and then all of a sudden I'm in the position of caring and learning and giving to my child. And then I have the system on me, like immediately a day after her birth. Um, but we made it happen. I can't even remember how many people we probably asked to lend us money. And we were able to rent um, an apart, uh, like a little apartment very close uh, to where we lived at that time. Um, it was a one bedroom. It was a one bedroom and we were able to do everything we needed to do um, as a social, social worker had stated. Um, so we didn't have time to grieve. We, we, I didn't have time to grieve. I was always thinking of how can I prove the system that I can take care of my child. Um, so by grieve, you mean you, you didn't have the time to really come to terms with having a daughter that uh, was impacted by Down syndrome. Um, you didn't even have the time to take, like, take it in, think about it, figure it out. You were just more so you hit the ground running from day one because that from day one they were at your house kind of checking you and then they were said you got to get out and move and even then that puts even more like a little bit of fire under you to to move um as opposed to kind of figure out how you're going to how how you're going to do things correct and yes and i and i and i like to be really honest with my experience and i and i and i'm very honest about that grieving part because while many parents might feel like, you know, at the end of the day, this is my child. To me, it was like, yes, this is my child. But 
what are the type of needs that she's gonna have? What are the medical needs? Again, I didn't have no education. I had no experience. I knew very little, very little amount of people that had Down syndrome. I, I had never had access to a community with special needs like I do now. Um, now, if I were to have another child and, and have a similar experience, at all means, I would know what to do and the journey would be very different. But back then, it was a, a very scary time. I had planned for one child and then I received another a, a, another child. Um, I was never a popular child in school. I was always the gordita child. I was always the one that they would pull her hair. I was always bullied. Um, it was, it was, school was really hard for me. Um, so when I get this diagnosis, I, I thought about like, oh my goodness, these are the things that are going to happen to my child. And by all means, she is tough. Like she is the opposite of me. Sometimes I have to actually calm her down so that she's not the bully. <laughs> like, wait, girl, calm your horses. You um, raised a strong, powerful woman. Yeah, like that's what you had done. She got too carried away with. She's that been strong. fighting from day one. She's, she's been, been fighting. fighting from day one, so it just kind of it's part. It's embedded in her personality. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> it wasn't mine, and it's still not. I'm a very passive person. Um, she's not. She's really strong to her advantage. Yes. You know what? I think that's all you. And maybe you consider yourself passive, but look how far you've come. You had like the strength and you like kept pushing for her. When when that social worker told you, you know, that they could be taken, she could be taken away. You just were like, no, I'm going to fight. You know, yes. so she gets it from you. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So she was, she was, uh, she was born. She uh, was diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, at what point did you start interacting with the regional center or start accessing any kind of any level of, of care or support or health care? Immediately, or immediately. When she was discharged, she was also born with a club foot. So one of her um, foots looked like a cane. It was it was just that they actually told me at birth. And one of the things that I remember, and again, you know, this is like really part of our story. And I'm, I, I'm a very spiritual person, but I remember that when they told me about her club foot, they sent me to the orthopedic hospital while I was still expecting. And I remember telling um, someone about the diagnosis. And I personally remember telling that person, I said, look, it, it could have been worse. It could have been Down syndrome. And wow. she's born and her diagnosis is Down syndrome. So the club foot was like the second of our worries. So fast forward to her discharge. I'm given a list like of all the places that I had to go to. They could have said go to Children's Hospital and these 15 places are going to be at Children's Hospital. No, they gave me a list of like orthopedic hospital, <laughs> children's hospital, like things that were like miles apart and I'm in the bus. So I I started off with, with that and regional center. And that was one of the first systems of care that I contacted. And um, I had a really positive experience in, in terms of having that system of care be of support. Um, they were like my on-call. Like if they were the petting kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. it was like on call for me. And um, 
quickly we were connected with them and, and that one service coordinator um i remember he came in and one of the first things he he told me he said mija you have to apply for social security and i said no but i don't want to get paid you know for my child i this is my responsibility and i have to figure it out and um he's like no me is that latino pride right there yes. yeah very like I'm very tengo nada que comer. and i'm like no you know we take care of we take care of ourselves yeah, yeah. definitely yes. and i was like no i don't you know like i grew up in 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 and i'm a product of welfare and food stamps you know i i didn't want that unless i had to and this service coordinator um said nope you have to go and apply he's like because and he and he said it in spanish he said le esto le va a dar la la calidad de vida que que no va a poder tener por su diagnóstico this is going to give her the quality of life that she wouldn't otherwise have a, a barring the, the diagnosis yeah. she's like so don't don't think of it as a payment think of it as something that you can use to identify the shoes that she's going to need because of her how mm. foot, how her foot looks the the extra gadgets you're going to need because it's going to take her a little longer to do certain things, you know? And I, I listened to him. I go and apply for social security. Clearly we qualified. I get the first, um, check. There was like retro payment. It was a $2,000 check. I cashed it until the last day before it expired. So it wasn't only the child development piece. It was also the system navigation and the emotional piece that was all happening all at once in the life of a 18 year old at this point. Mom. With no education, <laughs> with nothing. Because at that life. point you had dropped, you had dropped out in 10th grade, you said, right? I dropped out in 10th grade um, from high school um, with five credits. Oh my God. And I did it for my well-being because I was not going the right way. Right. Um, and I, I thought the, the best thing for me to do was to actually stop school and work because had I continued at school in the school I was attending and just everything that was happening was not, um, was not, not good for me. And so you left school, right? Um, and I know you mentioned that, you know, you guys, you, your family was like struggling financially. Did you feel like you had to work? Like it would have benefited like your household? Yes, actually, I dropped out of high school um, to work. Um, I was never given an option of like not working. It was like, well, if you're not going to school, then welfare's not coming. And if welfare's not coming, that you need to work. So I actually went to work like I wasn't pregnant or anything. I went to work. I spoke to the counselor at school that was on my case. Uh, and I told them, you know, um, if I continue being at school, I feel that I'm not going to be in a good place. And I'm going to get involved in things that I'm not going to be able to keep up, such as gangs. Like gangs were a big thing back, back then. Um, I'm so gonna... did you feel like you were going to, you had to go that route? Did you feel like, that was kind of like the only route that you feel like pressure. Cause so I have a friend who is now in jail. He was really close friend when I, when we grow up, when we grew up, he grew up in, in like that Salvadorian area in like what Western and um, Santa Monica. 
and he ended up getting into into MS um, because he lived in the neighborhood that where it was predominantly MS at the time. But even before that, it was like another gang. And then MS came in and kind of like took it over. And in that process, he lived in that neighborhood. He lived at the dead end. And the situation was that he got into a few confrontations with the, well, I guess with like the old gang, whatever, just some like neighborhood, neighborhood stuff, right? And if essentially what ended up happening was that if he didn't get into a gang, he was going to be consistently harassed and kind of bullied and targeted on a regular basis. So what he decided was to get into a gang to kind of like avoid that essentially, you know, 20 years, late 25 years later, he's in jail now, unfortunately. Um, like, was that a similar situation for you? I guess I'm asking. No, I felt there wasn't. You know, I I was at school, but I wasn't in school. I was always outside of school. So I just felt like I had very minimal options and the optional, the options available were not safe. Okay. And there was a, I, I just felt pressured. Maybe it was my own self feeling pressured. Um, I, I, I was just afraid that I was going to make bad choices by being at school um, because I wasn't at school and again I, I had very minimal empowerment you know to me it was you know whatever you decide but if, if you're in school then welfare's coming in if you're not in school then you need to work but then if I was in school it, I didn't feel safe you know mm. um and that's when I spoke to the counselor and I shared with him. I said, you know, I feel that I've, if I continue being here, I'm going to push myself into things that I'm not going to be able to keep up and are not going to be safe for me. Um, and I remember that counselor in, in the corner of his office said, okay, if that's what you want, by, no one's going to know by me. And if I don't put it out there, then you're off the radar. Wow. wow. And I... That was my last day. At, so last day. even at that point, there was no one to kind of even try to like look out for you or even try to give you some further guidance or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I I literally remember telling him that and he's like, OK, nobody's going to know about you. Just wow. go. And I left and I never went back then until now. And now I'm like, oh, Mireya, why didn't you do what you're doing? Now, <laughs> now I'm killing myself over an undergraduate program. Um, but again, to me, that was like the safest thing. And I went straight to work. I went straight to work um, from Monday through through Sunday. I worked from like 8 to 9 p.m. every single day um, for the next two years until I actually became pregnant. And through my pregnancy, I worked. Um, a few months before I, I gave birth, I, I, I stopped just because of health, um, situations. And yeah, that was my, that was my beginnings. That was my beginnings with, with my, my daughter. Yeah. It sounds like you've had to survive and had that mentality of surviving like a very young age. Yeah. Like, and you had to figure it out. Like, like you said, like you were talking to your counselor and he's not guiding you. You know, so you had to figure out the system yourself. And, and honestly, like I'm first generation, too, and I, I've had similar situations. You know, our stories are different, but I also felt like no one was guiding me 
right? No one looked like me. So I have to just figure it out. I have to survive. Yeah. yeah. Um, take us to some so she started getting therapy relatively young. Um, take us to a little bit of the uh, interactions with some of the the providers and how you felt through through those interactions. Um, and even uh, given your specific culture and the specific needs of the family, how because it already sounds like there's a little bit of a disparity there um, with regard to even, you know, like a counselor that doesn't necessarily look after you and kind of try to figure out how to make you six or how to help you be successful as a as a teenager, which is clearly the job of a counselor that's in the school. That's basically their job. Right. Um what kind of did you experience? I guess what I'm asking is, did you experience any disparities, um, cultural disparities in receiving services for and maybe some expectations that were inappropriate or just kind of off the wall when when you started accessing services for her? Oh, yes, they continue. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they, they continue. Only that now I can advocate for myself and be like, no, that don't belong there. Um, Get it. <laughs> excuse me. Or can you clarify this for me? Uh, but no, um, let me start off by saying that I've had, we've had amazing providers. Like in, in we've had a, a, a good amount of amazing providers. Um, I don't think we would be this far if we didn't. Um, but yet they're, they're at the age of three. I think that's where I thought I realized like, at some point in that in in that time frame, um, I felt like okay, these these people are not here for me. They're here for my daughter, but not for me. So this is my daughter's team, not my team. Wow. That's how I I began to to feel, and the reason why I felt like that, she gets evaluated for lanternman services at the age of three. Obviously, she she finishes the early start um, the early start services. Then she transitions to lanternman. She gets evaluated and there's a part in the psychoeducation, no, actually the psychological evaluation that says the mom's not involved. And I'm like, wait a minute, she's three years old. Like I'm working full time. Grandma's here. We're all trying our best to like play with toys like they're telling us. Um, I'm taking her to all these doctor's appointments. And this house is like really tiny to like not be involved. <laughs> like right. <laughs> we're like in the same square. How right, are you right, not right, involved? Right. Um, and that was the first time that I realized like these these people are not here for me. They're here for my kid, but not for me. I have to be on guard 24-7. And um. that was like a really tough feeling to have because that one professional almost guided the way that I felt about everyone else coming in. You felt attacked. I felt attacked. I felt judged. I felt blamed. Once again, I felt like someone was telling me, do you want to give her up? Oh, no. And yeah, like, oh, no, no. <laughs> like, right. If we had TikTok back then, that, <laughs> that would have been the, oh, no, no, no. We're going to add that into the, <laughs> yes, into the, you can. Into the edit. I'm like, oh my goodness. And 
years years forward, you know, that's not how I feel about everyone coming in. Right. Um, so we've had a, a share of amazing providers, most of them home providers. We've had really good experiences. Um, in terms of school providers, it has been really hard um, to the point where now we have an amazing attorney on retainer so that we can really advocate. And again, it goes to my past experiences with DCFS and psychological evaluations like that. I mean, how can you contradict a psychologist? Like, what power does this maybe like 20, 21 year old have who's like in a really bad situation have over a psychologist? I felt very powerless. Because that's like the the psychologist represents the system, represents this whole authority, and represents someone that's involved in that's been involved in your life. And it's good that because they're focusing on your daughter, but at the same time, they have that continual, they have that power to make some determinations to possibly take your take your daughter away. Which initially, when she was born, they kind of like they already had out the gate offered it to you. So you kind of have that in the back of your mind. And then to get some sort of determination of, hey, this parent is not involved, brings that back. And it's like now it's not so much more of an option. Now it's more like a threat almost like if 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 you don't say something, if you don't do something, if you don't advocate or act in the appropriate way, then you have this on on essentially kind of like your record and you know your your offspring the person that you love so much and like you said you're working so much you're kind of going through all these appointments that your your life basically revolves around your daughter and then there's you know so you've been doing all this and then there's a threat of just because someone writes it into a report and they might be kind of a little bit far removed where they're probably not the person that comes into your house on a weekly basis daily basis or whatever to help you out where you know, they're a little far removed and what they're writing may not necessarily be as accurate as we would like it to be. Um, and essentially without even giving context, right? Cause you, if they're writing this, maybe they're, maybe the perception is there, but then you also have to understand the circumstances where parent is, you know, working 40 hours a week is really busy, but then they're doing all these other things. We're getting, getting the, the baby to, to all these appointments so it is a very vulnerable position to to be in correct so Fair. what what happened after so you're reading this and it's saying that you're not involved like what happened um i nothing happened because i didn't know at that time that i could advocate for myself or even ask for that professional to review that um evaluation with me as the mother and go over the like the components of it right. and you know give me their perspective on what it meant to not be involved um so i i didn't ask for none of that because i didn't know that was even an option i just continued and i continued with that anger but m i think more than anger fear i'm not an, an angry person so everything translated into fear and to hypervigilance so I became very hypervigilant with the system, all systems and anyone coming in contact with us. Yet, fortunately, none of that never stopped me from bringing providers in. I think that's one of the, one of the things that I want to say that I've, I've, I've been able to, to give something to my daughter. It has been the opportunity to have services and really advocate for services, not only at school, but also at home, even when that meant that people were going to be in my business, because that's what it is. 
and they're telling me how to best support my child in a positive way. Um, and I'm responsible for these services. I, I always like to think for, for me as a mom is that great services come with great responsibility. And that means that the responsibility of consistency, of participation, of being open and honest. Um, so I've really had to work with myself to be able to build rapport and with the providers and really learn from the providers and really also not only let my fear of judgment but really learn from people and for those providers that have really left really positive experiences with us what what about them made it really positive for us um my daughter has a myriad of diagnoses she down syndrome being her primary diagnosis but she also has a history of oppositional defiant disorder of adhd and diabetes and there's others in there involved as well. And for each of those diagnoses, there's different systems of care involved. Um, and they all work on different things. And God forbid you ask them about another one because it's like, oh, well, we don't focus on that. You know, so it's also learning about... Like, about the boundaries. Yeah, learning about the boundaries and... And yeah, you don't focus on that, but how does the diagnosis that you do focus on impact that diagnosis? Right. And vice versa. Um, so it's really been a learning process. And, and one of the things that I want to say that I'm proud of, of myself is that despite my experiences with, with certain professions, I never let that stop me from accessing service. You know, because there's there, there was a big part of me of like, you know, I there's nothing that I'm covering, so why should I be afraid? So there was a, this big voice in me that always told me, like, no, Mireya, don't be afraid. So you shared, you know, that you had some really good experiences and also some bad. But, you know, focusing on, like, those characteristics of, like, positive, um, what do you think was really helpful or positive for you when those providers behaved in a certain way? Or what did they do? Uh, we've had so many of them across disciplines, but I think one of the one of the um, consistent traits of that positive experience really had to do with the providers that explained their role. And not only did they name a discipline um, specifically, but yes, they named the discipline and they and they explained their role as a therapist, as a behaviorist, as a um, clinician as a, a speech therapist they were very specific about what their role looked like and how they were going to implement it and they also valued the roles of the parent and asked me what my role as a parent was and how can i contribute to the therapy itself or the service versus i'm here to teach you this and i'm here so that you can do this not so that I can take care of your kid. Yeah. For me, when it started that way, I already felt, because of my experiences, I felt like, wait, are you telling me I'm not taking care of them? And I'm like, I read in between the lines and I will ask now. Back then, I would just keep it inside. So some of those really positive experience um, came across when providers explained their role and what that was gonna look like and how I could help or my family and how we can contribute to services. 
and we're also really good about explaining what a goal was and what an intervention was and how we can all work it as a team and, and collaborate. Um, they also took the time to speak with me as opposed to just my child. So it didn't make me feel like you're just here for the child because that child belongs to a family that's being raised by, in this case, mom and, and dad and grandma and aunt. And they took the time to talk to us, to in, embrace our, our culture. Um, I still think about it. And now with this whole stay at home order, it feels like, like another world, but we, we belong to a, a, a church community and many of the behaviors and difficult behaviors that we experienced were at church and um, we couldn't keep our, our daughter within the same um, bench and she was on top of people and moving people and I always felt like I was chasing her like one time she almost threw the Virgin Mary from, from the altar um, and I felt that I wanted to be at church, but I, I couldn't be there because I needed to take care of my child. And I didn't want to compromise with my need for, for church or God and the care of my child. And speaking to our um, clinical team, they agreed to came out, come out to church. The interesting thing was that church started at 7 and ended at 10. And I was like, they're not going to come this is too late in South LA, like who's going to come? And that team accommodated not only to coming out on a weekly basis, but also to being part of our community. Um, they didn't, they didn't look like they were a therapist there. They, they looked like they were part of my extended family being with us, going, going through the, through the motions of our like Culebrita de alabanza. And <laughs> They're dancing with, with you too. And dancing <laughs> and like high five because that was like a, a big part of our community. Like during our worship time to high five all the sisters and brothers at church. And then our potlucks, like they never, they never felt like some, some, someone different. Then I wanted to be at church, but my daughter wanted to be at youth ministry and she doesn't want her mom there. Then we worked it out so that the the behaviorist can be at youth ministry and eventually we brought in a personal assistant vendor by regional center who was also one of the youth in youth adults in youth ministry to be there as as an additional support person for my daughter while she was also working on specific aba goals adaptive skills goals to me that 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 makes me feel comfortable to me that makes me trust that that makes me feel like we're receiving services that are true to the need of the family instead of them feeling like they're robotic like you have to do this you have to do that like how much can you brush your teeth i think i mean i think you make a very good point with regards to how many times you can you brush <laughs> your teeth just because brushing your teeth yes it's a functional skill however when you when you compare the two skills of, of of brushing your teeth versus the skill of being able to be in a natural environment where in an essence you can pick up all of the natural skills from other kids or just being embedded in that environment and also having a quality of life where you have a social environment to go to and it's and 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 it's very routine it's very repetitive going to church right and it's generally the same um that adds a whole lot of value to that person's life 
if they're able to engage in that on a regular basis and had your clinical team or the practitioners that were providing services for you not necessarily made those specific cultural adaptations, um, your daughter wouldn't wouldn't necessarily have a place to go where she was accepted and she was able to be around other people. And then, like I said, pick up other functional skills that just happen in a very natural environment. Right. Which and is- then what we also learned through not only our, our daughter, but also the, the therapy piece is that she was in a youth ministry group. So she herself started realizing like, wait a minute, I'm here. And this is where I, I need to be because I don't fit in the, 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 the child age group. Right. But why can't I do the things that I, that everyone else is doing, like reading the Bible, um, that is specific youth ministry. They, they would use their phones to read certain scriptures. Like I have a phone, but why can I necessarily read it? Or why can't I keep up with what they're doing? So we started seeing, um, some behaviors in, in there, but they were as a result of, of also her disability and the, the result of of all things that she was learning about herself, oh, that she was having a hard time. Okay. So you said you were saying that you started having, she started, you started seeing behaviors as a result of her trying, figuring out, looking at her environment, comparing her own kind of performance to their environment and wanting to be just like everybody else and wanting to engage in the things that everybody else was engaged in. Um, but she was having some trouble. So as a result, you saw some behaviors kind of start, uh, coming up. There was a lot of, um, there was some behaviors actually that were very associated to her difficulties in, in, in not being able to do everything that peers, same peers, her age were actually doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that had to do because of her intellectual disability, Mm -hmm. um, and the challenges that come along with that. Um, and her learning about her uh, diagnoses, which we did not necessarily tell her. We started more so preparing her. Then one of the things that she took upon herself to do actually was to um, go to the to the prayer group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of church, usually there would be a group of people that would stay for prayer. She would go on her own by herself to actually pray to help the pray ministry pray for other people and i i always stood by by the by the entrance of the church just to really embrace that whole scenario because she was um praying for other people in el santísimo and the behaviorist would be sitting in the second bench just waiting for for our daughter and to me that was like I wish so many people could see this because we're, I don't consider my ourselves like super religious, but we're very spiritual. And the fact that this brought joy to my daughter and that she was respected for it and she was given the time to do that was, was just ad- admirable. Like I can admire it from like so many places, like from the fact that, oh my God, my daughter's doing this. But also there's someone there to be of support to her and respect her for that and make her feel empowered. Maybe you don't know how to read at this point, but you're you're able to pray. God knows I, I can't do that. I think I, I think you hit on a really good point. And I also think that there's a level of uh, the uh, there's a whole discussion to be had about integrity and the, the self-efficacy and the control that a person exercises over in their own life, because 
she sees everybody doing all of these things and the fact that she can do them too she feels proud and that in itself adds quality of life to her um given that the provider did these things and they were able to engage in these behaviors and and work through the process then um they were she was able to feel more proud and be embedded in an environment where she could essentially succeed so i think um and it essentially is very healthy for her it was it is very it, it has been always 